Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. My name is Marco Schooley, and I'm a first-year MBA candidate and co-president of the Johnson Sports Analytics Club. It is my pleasure to introduce a conversation between Greg Wool and Doug Fury. Doug is the founder and president of Zealous Analytics, which is an Austin-based sports analytics company. Before launching Zealous, he founded the baseball research and development team for the Los Angeles Dodgers. The interview touches on Doug's career, innovation and data usage by athletes and franchises, and the thought process surrounding a franchise's decision to trade a high-profile player. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. Hi, listeners. I'm your host for this episode, Greg Wool. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on March 5th, 2020, which now seems like a very long time ago. On March 12th, Major League Baseball suspended operations indefinitely due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Because this interview took place before that announcement, Doug and I discuss neither the disease nor the postponement of the baseball season. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Doug Fearing is the co-founder and president of Zealous Analytics, an Austin-based sports analytics company that applies an innovative business model to build the world's best sports intelligence platform. Doug's career in computer science and operations research has spanned positions in academia, as well as industries such as automotive, transportation, and sports. Prior to Zealous, Doug founded the baseball research and development team for the Los Angeles Dodgers prior to the 2015 season. Over the course of Doug's four-year tenure, the R&D team grew from one full-time employee to 20 and became one of the leading analytics groups in all of Major League Baseball. Doug got his start in the sports world with the Tampa Bay Rays, where he served as an advisor in the research and development department. While consulting for the Tampa Bay Rays, Doug served as an assistant professor in operations management at both Harvard Business School and at the University of Texas at Austin. Doug received a PhD in operations research from MIT and a bachelor's degree in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University. Doug is here at the Cornell Johnson Graduate School of Management speaking to first-year MBA students on real-world applications of data analytics. Doug, thanks so much for joining us on Present Value. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Who were your favorite teams? What role did sports fandom play in your childhood? Wow. So I grew up in Los Angeles or outside of LA. I mean, it's a big area, but grew up watching the Dodgers and was a huge Vin Scully fan. Actually, remember, I used to spend time in my grandmother's house. I remember listening to Vin Scully on the radio. I still feel like he's the best broadcaster in professional sports. And so was very fortunate to have him through my childhood and then kind of came of age in 1988 when the Dodgers won the World Series. And so vividly remember the Kirk Gibson home run in game one. And yeah, so, you know, that really locked in my baseball fandom, I guess, and have stayed a huge fan ever since. And then, you know, this kind of jumps ahead, but to have the opportunity to actually work for my childhood team was pretty amazing. Absolutely. I actually recently had the opportunity to go to Dodger Stadium and part of the tour takes you so you can see from Vin Scully's view onto the field. 
that was a, a really great experience. It's a great ballpark. Yeah, it's a tremendous park, and they've done a really nice job of keeping all of the history of the organization. I mean, you, you do the tour and you see all the gold gloves, all the Cy Young trophies. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, to be connected to the same organization as Jackie Robinson, it's, it's a pretty amazing experience. Now, in full disclosure, I'm sitting here wearing a Red Sox uh, baseball jersey. My family are, are Red Sox, and we spend a lot of time listening to Dennis Eckersley on Nesson. And, of course, he's the one who threw the pitch that gave up that home run you mentioned. So a lot of tie-in with my own sports fandom as well. So you, of course, have an extensive resume in sports analytics and have now founded your own firm, Zealous Analytics, based in Austin. Can you walk our listeners through your career journey to this point, starting with your computer science degree from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh? Sure. Yeah, undergraduate degree in computer science. I was actually more of a theoretical CS degree, didn't know what I wanted to do, thought I was going to go to grad school at the time, and ended up, you know, that was really right around the, the dot-com boom. So there were all sorts of interesting opportunities in industry. I ended up taking a job with a company in Austin Trilogy Software, which was extremely competitive about hiring talent from top universities, was sort of competing with Microsoft at the time. Trilogy, when I joined, was probably about 1,000 people and grew over a couple of years to 2,000. So it created all sorts of career development opportunities, which were amazing. So I was managing a 15-person team delivering enterprise software to, to Ford Motor Company at 25 years old, which was not an experience that you typically get. And the other thing that was kind of amazing about the Trilogy experience is the dot-com bust was right after that. So, so basically went from growing and hiring all these really talented people to the company kind of dissolved and everybody just wanted to stay in Austin. Austin's an amazing city. We've <laughs> tried to leave Austin three times and each time moved back. Yeah, so, so now it's been actually really helpful that I have this incredible tech and startup network in Austin, which I'm relying on with Zealous. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about the Trilogy experience, in part because of that hiring strategy, was really got to work on really challenging problems with smart people. And that's kind of been the consistent theme throughout my career, is I like being able to work on things where the people around me can push me to be better. And so when I was thinking about grad school, I wanted another field that sort of had a similar flavor. And building off of computer science, operations research is nice because it connects a little bit more closely to the decision-making environment, right? These are sort of techniques that were developed around World War II for scheduling logistics, but essentially optimizing decision-making. And so, yeah, when I learned about the field, it was really exciting. And actually, the, the way that I learned about the field was my wife was an MBA student at Sloan at the time, and she brought home the brochure from the department. So I, like, I learned about my eventual graduate program from a brochure. And it's I a marketing applied. person at MIT who's just thrilled to hear that. Yeah. No, and the Operations Research Center is great because it is this nice blend of, it's not within a department. It's sort of a joint program between electrical engineering and computer science and the business school. And so it really did have that, you know, it was really challenging problems, interesting technical approaches, but focused on solving kind of real world business challenges. And I started at MIT in 2005. And my PhD research was actually in the airline industry. I looked at techniques to help regulators mitigate the impacts of severe weather disruptions. Essentially, how can the regulators better think about the airline operations when they're controlling flights? And the thing that was nice about that field is, is it's very different than sports, but the, the thing that was similar is that there are 
really interesting data sets to be able to explore and work with and build these models on top of. And so I got to use statistics, optimization, simulation in my research. And then while I was at MIT is where I really got connected to the sports analytics community. Daryl Morey, who was with the Celtics at the time, taught a sports management seminar that I took my first year. And then I was able to do some research in golf analytics. Never played golf, but we got access to the ShotLink data set, which is essentially golf's data of every shot location on the PGA Tour. And so we were able to use that to analyze putting performance. Actually, so Mark Brody, who's a professor at Columbia, has stayed very connected to the PGA Tour and has helped them develop their strokes gained metrics, which are kind of the leading edge of, of golf performance analysis, let's say. And our one claim to fame in the golf analytics space is that the name strokes gained actually came from our paper. So not, wow. the, not the methodology, but the name. So we had putts gained and strokes gained. And yeah, Mark did all the hard work of actually developing the, the techniques, but we get some, I guess, marketing credit. So yeah, so, so that was, you know, that was a really fun project. I really enjoyed getting connected with sports analytics. And when I was finishing my PhD, because of that and because of the connection with Daryl, I looked at full-time sports opportunities. So interviewed for a full-time position with Tampa Bay Rays at the time. And, you know, one of the challenges, I think, in general about going into sports is there are a lot of people who like to work in sports. From that perspective, it's a very competitive field. And, and as a result, the supply demand imbalance does not really favor strong compensation packages, right? So I was finishing my PhD. I was married. I had two kids. And I also had an opportunity with Harvard Business School. And so <laughs> ended up staying in Boston, teaching at, at Harvard for three years. But because of that experience interviewing for the full-time position, I built a lot of good relationships with people at Tampa Bay Rays, and, and that's what led into the consulting opportunity. So, Now, before you engaged in work with the Tampa Bay Rays, had you brought your analytical skill set and mindset to baseball in any actionable way? Just for fun. I mean, I played fantasy baseball, and I kind of skipped one year in my career where I was a stay-at-home dad. So when my wife started her MBA, she had this incredible opportunity the program's called Leaders for Global Operations now. At the time, it was Leaders for Manufacturing, but essentially an MIT program with a dual degree. So she got a master's in civil engineering and an MBA, and she was sponsored by Dell. So they paid her tuition and her salary, which was incredible. And so basically, I was able to take a year off and just kind of figure out what I wanted to do, which is how I decided to study operations research. But during that year, I, I just I blogged. I did a lot of fantasy baseball. My son... <laughs> who was an infant at the time, was napping a lot, so it gave me a lot of time. But there were some video games, too. But yeah, so that was just a, you know, a really nice opportunity to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. And that, I think, really recharged my passion for sports and baseball and, and the Dodgers, as a matter of fact, because the, the blog that I was writing, I mean, it was just a community member, so I was writing posts on the blog talking about Dodger prospects. And it was Dodger Thoughts, which the person who started the blog, John Weissman, ended up being a director for the Dodgers when I started. So we sort of reconnected in that role, which was incredibly coincidental and sort of tied everything back together in a very nice way. So there's a, a lot of folks who play fantasy baseball and fancy themselves managers or general managers, and, and you were able to take that passion and skill set and actually do it in real life and, and build an analytics division for the LA Dodgers. Talk to me about building that organization. What were some of the challenges and what was your philosophy going in? 
Sure. So, I mean, I was very fortunate. I've talked about this a lot. You know, I joined the Dodgers because Andrew Friedman, who was the former general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays, had been given the opportunity to run the Dodgers front office. And, and so we had a connection from my work with the Rays. And yeah, he offered me the opportunity to sort of move into baseball full time. At the time, I was still a, a professor at UT Austin. So that was, that was incredible. But, but the really nice thing about that experience and something that most people don't have when they come into this type of position is there was already a shared understanding of the type of team and capabilities that we wanted to build based on what the Rays had accomplished over the previous eight years. I mean, the Rays were an early mover in this space. They continue to invest a lot in analytics, have created a lot of organizational value as a result. And so, you know, to have that reference point was really helpful. And, and also, because of that, the flexibility to go in and aggressively build a strong team. So one of the things I think that, that we did a little bit differently than the Rays is you, know, you, you sort of start off in this position and you realize, I mean, at, at the time, the, the Dodgers had not invested a lot into analytics. They were, they were using a lot of vendors to, to ask and answer interesting questions, but that's, it's tough to create a sustained competitive advantage through that approach because everybody's using the same vendors, right? That's a challenge in the space. And so, you know, we were kind of starting from scratch in terms of building this out. And this is in 2015. I mean, Moneyball was published in 2003. The Rays, I believe they hired James Click, who was their kind of head of analytics in 2007. He's now the general manager for the Astros. He was actually the person that hired me with the Rays. And so you think about it, I mean, we're, we're 2014, we're essentially seven years behind, right? So, so the question is, in that situation, how do you very quickly go from being one of the lagging teams to being one of the leading teams? And the strategy we took, which I think was very successful, is to try to find people who had specialized expertise for working with the types of complex data that exists at the time. So we hired a couple of PhDs in statistics. Dan Trevoni, who has since joined me at Zealous as our principal data scientist, Scott Powers, who's now the director with Dodgers, Essen Bakari, PhD in quantitative psychology, who's now heading up analytics with the Astros, and then a couple of PhDs in biomedical engineering who had a focus on biomechanics. And yeah, through, through that approach, I think we were able to, in a relatively short period of time, catch up to the leading teams. And of course, the the team has had a lot of success. I think the work that we did played some role in that. I mean, the team was very well positioned with all the talent in the organization and lots of good decisions in terms of player acquisitions. And, but yeah, I think we were able to, to help a little bit as well. The team certainly had a, a lot of success during your tenure. You talked about some of the differences between the Rays and the Dodgers organization in terms of the length of time they'd been using some of these in-house analytical tools. One other big difference between the Rays and the Dodgers is the size of the market. The Rays are known as a, a smaller mid-market team, and the Dodgers are known to have one of the largest payrolls currently in baseball. What are some of the differences in performing analysis on a large market team versus a smaller market team? The models themselves are very similar, right? At the end of the day, you're trying to, as best you can, predict future performance or predict in-game outcomes determine best matchups, position fielders. I mean, those capabilities that we were building with the Dodgers were really similar to the work that I did with the Rays and, you know, obviously trying to iterate on the approaches, but solving similar problems. I think where there 
ends up being a difference is in the decision-making process. How do you use those tools? And with the raise, they have to take more risks. I mean, fundamentally, as an organization, they are risk-seeking because if everything just plays out in expectation, they're going to struggle to compete with the Red Sox and the Yankees because payroll has such a significant impact on the type of talent pool you can put together. And so they have been willing to be the first mover in a lot of instances where they expect there to be value, but there's a risk associated with that. And I think with larger market organizations, it's more challenging to do that because you think about the Dodgers, you think about the Yankees. I mean, in expectation, those teams should perform well, right? Because of the budgets they have, because of the resources. And so in that environment, the rational approach is to try to reduce risk. You don't want to be trying things out if you're already going to be successful. So I think where what you see is that the Dodgers, the Yankees, these larger organizations are kind of fast followers. They look to teams like the Rays or the Brewers or the A's who are smaller market teams who are making really good decisions and can kind of take whatever works and then apply it very quickly. The nice thing is, again, the models are very similar. So the same analysis that supports that decision-making at the Rays is supportive of that decision-making at the Dodgers as well. It's just, again, the, the balancing the risk trade-off in terms of how to execute those strategies. Thinking about the difference in approach between a small market team and a large market team and the level of risk that the team might be willing to take on, is there any parallel you might draw between various businesses in, say, the finance or even in the wider business community? Yeah, I guess there are a couple examples I can think of. We're going through our fundraising process now, so I've been interacting a lot with venture capital and their model is really risk-seeking, right? They're, they're looking for one big success. They're looking for the unicorns that can really drive the success of the overall fund versus, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have private equity where they're looking for a lower risk portfolio. And I, and I think there probably is some, you know, some kind of analogy there in terms of how teams at different ends of the spectrum think about their decision-making. Another good example also kind of in the startup space is Clayton Christensen, a Harvard Business School faculty member who unfortunately recently passed away, wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. And, so, and that sort of talks about disruption. Disruption and innovation often comes from these smaller players because they're forced to take risks, right? If you're the large player, you sort of want to maintain the status quo because the status quo favors you. And so I think there's a parallel there too. The Rays are kind of like the scrappy startup of the baseball world. That's great. So after your time with the Dodgers, you've now ventured out on your own to create Zealous Analytics. Talk to me about making that transition and describe for our listeners some of the services that Zealous offers. The decision to transition from the Dodgers into a startup was largely driven by personal constraints. Like I said, every, every time we've moved away from Austin, we've managed <laughs> to be pulled back. And so we spent a couple of years in LA. My family wanted to get back to Austin. And so in the middle of the 2018 season, we moved back. I was commuting back and forth to LA through the end of the season and realized that was not going to be a sustainable model. So left the Dodgers after the, the 2018 World Series and wanted to continue working in sports. I mean, I, I really enjoy, in particular, I really enjoy the complexity of the challenges associated with complex sports data. 
we have found this in terms of our hiring, but that's one of the things that really appeals to people kind of at the PhD level about working in sports is it's really rich, interesting spatial temporal data that you can directly connect to play on the field. The blend of art and science in sports is, is really nice. So yeah, so I was really wanted to continue working in sports and there are, are no professional sports teams in Austin. UT <laughs> sort of operates like one and we're getting a major league soccer team. So that's nice. But the ability to build the same type of analytics team or capability that I'd built with the Dodgers just didn't exist. And so Zealous was essentially solving for that constraint of how can I continue to do work in this space and leverage the, the skills that I had developed previously. And essentially, I went to winter meetings. So winter meetings are the big, all the teams come together. There's a lot of discussion about free agents and trades and almost like the industry conference for, for Major League Baseball. And so I went to winter meetings in 2018 after the season, and I just started talking to some of my friends in the industry and kind of proposed this idea of building a multi-team sports analytics group. And fortunately, people were interested and excited about it. And Dan, who I mentioned earlier, had worked with Luke Bourne, who was a professor at Harvard at the time. So while Dan was doing his PhD, he worked with Luke Bourne, and they had worked on a paper using ball and player tracking data to essentially measure the expected possession value in basketball. So, so if you take a snapshot of the court at any moment in time and you know where all the players are and you know where the ball is, you can, you can say essentially this is, in expectation, this is worth 0.8 points or 1.2 points. And so that creates this sort of fundamental capability where now you can start to attribute incremental changes in that. So it was just a, it was a really nice paper. It's been cited by a lot of people in the sports analytics community, kind of foundational work. And so, yeah, so that was, it was because of that paper that we hired Dan with the Dodgers trying to apply those same techniques. And then when I left the Dodgers, Dan connected me with Luke. Luke is currently the head of analytics for Sacramento Kings. He's also a co-founder and research advisor for Zealous. And so what we realized in those discussions is that similar challenges apply across sports. Everyone is looking at the ball and player tracking data, realizing the complexity associated with that, wants to create as much value as possible, and also sees on the horizon that player kinematics are going to be even more complex, right? So, so ball and player tracking, you generally measure the ball in three dimensions over time, but the players are just in sort of a two-dimensional XY coordinate system. And then kinematics, it moves from that two-dimensional system to now every point on the body is measured in, in three dimensions in time, right? So, so it's just an order of magnitude jump in complexity to, to work with that type of data. And so, so teams are struggling with the challenges associated with ball and player tracking and sort of afraid of, <laughs> of what's coming next. Yeah, and so realize that based on the interest on the baseball side and the kind of the convergence across sports in terms of the types of complex data, there was this really interesting opportunity to not just build a multi-team group for baseball, but, but to do that across sports. So that's essentially what we got to. I think you mentioned the, the mission of Zealous is to build the world's best sports intelligence platform. And our plan is to do that by recruiting world-class analytics talent and working with professional sports franchises who have the most interesting data sets and, and the most interesting problems in the space. And so we're now well into that journey. We, we have 12 full-time employees, a couple more coming on, and six customers in Major League Baseball, one in each division. 
And this summer, we're planning on expanding into other pro sports, already having some preliminary discussions about hockey and basketball and football and trying to figure out how to approach each of those spaces in tennis. We actually were very fortunate to hire Stephanie Kowalczyk as one of our senior data scientists, and she's one of the world's leading tennis analysts. So yeah, this what started off as just a way to solve for, <laughs> in some ways, just solving for a personal constraint of wanting to work in sports in Austin has led to, I think, a really exciting opportunity and business model. It sounds like you provide tremendous value in being able to take the glut of data that exists and give it to teams in an actionable way that allows them to make decisions and actually coach their players in a, a way that actually translates to results at the end of the day. Well, that's certainly the plan. One of, I would say, the nice things about our approach and the relationships that we have with the existing teams is there's an expectation that the team itself has a strong internal analytics capability as well that we're essentially providing the team with tools that they can use to improve sometimes their own analytical processes, but also the, their decision-making, their integration with the coaches and players. And yeah, we've been fortunate to have some partners who are really engaged. I mean, right now we're just building out those capabilities, but to have partners who are really engaged in terms of providing feedback and reviewing our results. And so, yeah, it's been, it's still very early, but the trends are, are very positive. How did you come up with the name Zealous? So, you know, I think this is similar to how a lot of people come up with names is you just you sort of search for <laughs> Greek gods and, and try to find one that, that matches the profile of the company. So I was doing that and, and Zealous is a titan god of rivalry and jealousy. And so it matches very well with our model of, well, rivalry with sports. But even jealousy, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create this exclusive platform for our partner teams. Yeah, Zealous is actually the brother of Nike, which is kind of a funny. So at some point, they did the same thing, and it just has kind of stuck since then. That's great. So many of our listeners probably will have read or seen Moneyball and heard seasoned scouts in a back room discussing prospects in terms of the eyeball test. Can you walk me through the process of evaluating or scouting a prospect and for our listeners explain how that process may have changed in the last decade? I am not a scout myself. And so, you know, there are people who have scouted players for 20, 30 years. And what you find is that the best scouts have unbelievable pattern recognition. Their, their ability to see a player and essentially do a real-time lookup of all of the history of players that they have seen previously is tremendous. They can say that swing is like this player, runs like this other player, and recall how those players have progressed. The best scouts have really strong pattern recognition abilities and also really strong recall. And it's, I mean, better than I've seen in, in any other industry, really. So, you know, what, what we're trying to do in analytics is help with that process, right? By taking the historical player data and looking for patterns in performance that also predict future performance. And, you know, the best draft decision-making processes are the ones that appropriately blend both sources of information. I mean, that's actually a really challenging thing to do because 
I think one of the challenges in a subjective decision-making environment is it's hard not to overweight subjective information, right? So a really good, you know, I was fortunate to work with Billy Gasparino, our amateur scouting director at the Dodgers, and, you know, a really good scouting director, what he is able to do is separate out his personal biases about the player and let the broader information decide the decision. And that's hard to do when you're, when you're the person who's making the decision. If you like or don't like a player, that can really yeah, be hard to separate from that. So yeah, so, so that's where on the draft, we would provide information to try to essentially anchor that decision-making process. These types of players have historically done this. That doesn't mean that this individual player is going to follow the same pattern. And in part, that's a lot of where the art comes in, because you have to think not only what is the historical pattern of player development, but how as an organization are we going to handle this player individually, right? If, if we think we can make a swing change, that might push a player outside of that historical pattern. So yeah, so, so that's a really, scouting is a, I mean, my recall is terrible. One of the reasons that I got into analytics was because I can't recall things, so I just let a computer do it for me. But it's a really interesting decision-making environment as a result. Thank you. One other change recently in baseball or over the last several decades is the change in the sheer number of stats that are available for the casual fan who might be watching the game in a bar. And there's a perception that back in the day, if you wanted to know if a pitcher was good, you looked at his win-loss record or his ERA. And for a batter, you might look at his batting average, maybe his slugging percentage, and that would describe from a fan's point of view that player's value. Now that so many people are playing fantasy baseball and you can look up somebody's ERA+, plus, WHIP, WAR, BABIP, WOBA, FIP, dozens of stats that you could come up with. For casual fans of baseball who are maybe intimidated by the sheer volume of descriptive statistics available, how would you recommend thinking about the usefulness of these metrics? How much is too much? That's a good question. I mean, for the fan, it's all about how you experience the game, right? So, so the goal of the metrics isn't to necessarily predict who the best player is. It might be, you know, just to settle a debate that you're having with your friend. So from that perspective, I think it really is about just like what appeals to you. What do you think is interesting? And, and that's part of the reason why there's been such an explosion of metrics is because there are different groups of people who get excited about different things, right? And baseball has always had this. There's a subset of the of kind of the hardcore fans who really want the FIP plus and the deserved run average and want to sort of be on that leading edge of, of baseball statistics. And there's a group of fans who are casual fans and, and want the strikeout rate and batting average. And that's, that's fine too. You know, when you're on the other side of it from an organization perspective, you really want metrics that have the same units so that you can put things together to describe the total value of the player. And so often the scaling there is in terms of runs or wins, because at the end of the day, that's what you're trying to drive for the organization. They're trying to create more runs, save more runs, and as a result, win more games. So that consistency of units and consistency of evaluation ends up being incredibly valuable from the organization perspective. But yeah, for the casual fan, it really should just be about, you know, what are you interested in? Do you want the robust statistical approach or do you want the thing that you can actually break down? And I mean, the nice thing about batting average has always been that a seven-year-old fan can calculate it. A lot of people have gotten into statistics because of looking at the back of a baseball card, which is great about baseball. That's a really good point. 
So shifting our lens from the fan perspective to the player perspective, as analytics advances, there are these descriptive statistics we were just speaking about and some of the bodies in motion data that you're talking about. How are things changing from a player's point of view in terms of how they approach their development, their training, their work in the offseason, their communication with coaches and each other? It's changing for the players too. I mean, you look at driveline baseball is pretty public about the approaches they use to help players improve. Kyle Body has done a lot of really interesting work. We actually hired one of our biomechanists, Jimmy Buffy, had done some work with Kyle. His PhD was actually on pitching biomechanics after a UCL injury, or Tommy John for more of the casual fan. But so there's a lot more of that type of work and that type of training going on at the elite level where players are putting on markers and doing motion capture analysis and players are looking at high-speed video and they're using tools to measure the spin rate of their pitches and the spin axis and in some ways the the work that's being done at these development facilities outside of the league are really pushing teams to keep up there are some college programs who are very strong with using those same types of technologies, building labs for player performance. So the, young, the younger players are actually very aware of and knowledgeable of and, and open to these tools because they've sort of used them a lot throughout their amateur career by the time they get to professional baseball. Yeah, so it's, it, is, it is definitely changing. And I think it's going to continue to change. I mean, there are a lot of companies thinking about smart equipment, smart apparel. I'm an advisor to Diamond Kinetics, which has a bat sensor, a smart ball. Their vision is really thinking about what is the future of training for baseball. And I, and I think that's, yeah, even when you think about Nike and Under Armour, they're kind of thinking about what is the future of training for sport. And that is going to create some really interesting opportunities, some really interesting markets. You mentioned earlier that Zealous has the ability to branch into some other sports and fans who watch the NFL are familiar with the Ravens using analytics in a new way to game plan and evaluate players and even team owners like David Tepper speaking about analytics in a really tangible way and how he's managing his NFL team. What are some ways that these advanced tools and this new availability of data are changing sports in addition to baseball? That's a really good question. Baseball continues to be essentially the reference board for analytics maturity. Right? We, we talked about building up the Dodgers R&D group up to 20 people. That's, that's one of the largest groups in Major League Baseball and correspondingly one of the largest groups in North American pro sports. And every sport follows or, or seems to be following a similar analytics evolution, right? starting with using new data sources to look for interesting insights and then kind of building new descriptive metrics for the games. I talked about kind of the putting everything in the same units, kind of creating the accounting system of runs and wins, and, and then moving into predictive modeling with complex data sources, and then thinking about the decision support tools and processes that actually best utilize that information, right? The amateur draft, how do you put together scouting information with the analytics? And so a lot of baseball teams have already progressed through the majority of those phases, whereas in other sports, that process is just starting. Even in football, the ball and player tracking data wasn't available until the 2018-2019 season, I believe. So, so the access to the information to build those complex predictive models 
wasn't there. So they're just kind of starting to to scratch the surface. The NBA is is further along. There are teams like the 76ers that have pretty robust analytics groups and capacities. But there's still a lot of variability even within sport. And and that's true with baseball as well. The Dodgers being around a 20-person group, probably the the range of analytics investment is something like 5 to 10x from the leaders to laggards. That range seems to be consistent across sports. So even when you look at, you know, the Ravens have built out five or six person groups, they continue to expand. There are still some teams that have one analyst, right? So so you kind of see this in football. And that's an interesting part of the analytics evolution because everything continues to be driven by, you know, the leaders in the space. As they have success, people want to catch up and, and follow. So, you know, as a kind of a fan of sports analytics, it's exciting to watch this progression across multiple sports. I'd be remiss not to ask you about one of the biggest stories of the offseason, the Dodgers blockbuster three-team trade with the Boston Red Sox. That move sent outfielder Mookie Betts and Cy Young winner David Price to the Dodgers, and the Dodgers gave up outfielder Alex Verdugo and pitcher Kenta Maeda, as well as some top prospects. Mookie is widely regarded as being one of the best two or three players in the game right now, and he was the first player in Major League Baseball history to win the MVP, the Silver Slugger, Gold Glove, Batting Title, and World Series all in the same season. This move took place after you left the Dodgers, and I'd love to hear your reaction to the trade, as well as any insight you have on some of the thought that may have gone into it. Yeah, I mean, I still have a lot of good friends with the organization, so I was very excited for the team. I still... Andrew's actually talked about this a lot. If you want to trade for top talent, you're going to have to give up a little more than the surplus value calculations would suggest. The market is such that there are lots of people competing for those top players. One of the things the Dodgers have done extremely well over the past few seasons is build out the depth of the organization. So when you look at the 25th or soon to be 26th man on the the roster, those players are still very talented. They are players who would be playing every day on almost any other team in Major League Baseball. You know, I talked about reducing that the correct decision for an organization like that is to reduce risk. That is a really good way to build a robust roster. If you lose someone to injuries, you know that you're going to be replacing them with someone who is also very talented. And so the amount that you lose, now there are certain players are still would be very painful. In baseball, there's this concept of a replacement level. And replacement level is this idea that at any time, an organization could sort of go out and there are players who are in AAA who you could probably acquire roughly for free. And so so the, the idea is these players who are freely available, what is their expected level of performance And that sort of sets a baseline. And anything above that is essentially what you're paying for. And the challenge with the Dodgers is because of the depth of the organization, that baseline has been set very high. Within the organization, they have these very talented players all the way up through, I mean, on the major league roster and all the way down to AAA, where it then becomes hard to improve the team because you have to get a player better than that baseline. And so I think where the the Mookie Betts trade makes a lot of sense for the organization is one way you can really improve the baseline is to tr- go out and acquire one of the best players in the sport. And so even though the cost was high, it makes a lot of sense for an organization like that to make that type of move because 
again, the, if you look at the players they traded away, they were closer to that internal line. And so the relative cost you know, for the Dodgers as an organization was lower than it would have been if you think about making that same trade for another team that doesn't have the same depth and talent pool. Is it surprising that a team like the Red Sox that, from my perspective, has been known to outspend the league in terms of payroll for most of the 21st century would make a deal like this in a move that seems designed, from my perspective, to be to cut payroll? Those types of moves are very challenging for organizations. The trick is when you're thinking about kind of managing a franchise, it's not just present day performance. I think fans tend to be more focused on, (laughs) fans would discount the future at a very high rate. Whereas as a general manager, you have to think about not only how are we going to succeed as an organization today, but are we set up to succeed in the long term? And, you know, the Red Sox, I'm sure, are thinking about where they are positioned relative to the Yankees, relative to the Rays. And, And so there's this very complicated calculus that goes into thinking about not only your chances today, but how does this affect your chances in the future? And so I think the smarter organizations realize that occasionally you have to make decisions that fans don't like because you have to be thinking about that long-term future of the organization. And so that kind of gets back to the other side of what I was saying, which is, you know, the Dodgers perspective, they were able to trade a lot of talent to acquire Mookie Betts because of how that fit in with where the roster was, with where they were in their competitive cycle, how the rest of the division lays out. It makes sense to me that similarly, the Red Sox could be thinking about the same factors and the deal makes sense for them as well, right? Again, if you're looking at it from a surplus value perspective, they got a lot in return for one year of a very good player. So yeah, so I mean, that's, that's why deals happen, right? There are a lot of considerations that go into it beyond just the quality of the best player in the deal or the talent level of the best player in the deal. And so as a fan, now on the other side, seeing your favorite player in another uniform is never fun. But I do think that can be done in a way. And and look, having been with the Rays for a number of years, that was something that they always had to do. They they didn't have the financial luxury to re-sign and keep their best players. They sort of had to figure out how to keep building for the future. And they do today. So there is this balance that every organization has to find. This was a deal that I could see making sense for both sides. From my perspective, my hope is that just like the last time the Red Sox sent some all-stars over to the Dodgers, it resulted in a World Series win in 2013. So maybe there's a future in which case it works out well for us again. Bring the conversation back to Zealous. I'd love to know how you see the Zealous organization growing over the next several years. What goals do you have for the company? Well, the first goal is, is really to build out and successfully deploy the Major League Baseball intelligence platform. I and mean, we're highly focused as a group right now, engineering and data science, on making sure that we provide for our partner teams world-class capabilities around player evaluation, acquisition, so that we position ourselves well for discussions for those renewals and and thinking about in-game strategy and amateur draft player development. Second to that is making this a multi-sport company. I mean, we're really excited about the opportunity to expand this model across sports and, 
and we have some key people in place to help us do that. Yeah, I think the next few months is going to be a really exciting time for the company. Going through fundraising now, that's always exciting. And, you know, that's really supporting that expansion. So, yeah, so I think coming back a year from now, the hope would be that we're at a position where we can say, hey, we're in two or three sports. We've sort of proven that we can make this a consistent model in baseball. And we're making plans for, for capturing those last few, maybe expanding internationally, college. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the next phase. I look forward to tracking that success. Before we go, I have one more question. How has being involved in the game in a more professional capacity changed your relationship with the sport? Do you miss being a fan? You know, the funny thing is, when you're working for a team, it feels like you're disconnected and a super fan all at the same time. You have to be disconnected because the decision-making process forces you to be so, right? You have to think sort of, especially on the analytics side, you have to think rationally about the information and, and how it should be applied and how you should be modeling. These are jobs where people make a lot of sacrifices, whether it's compensation, time. They're really fun, but they tend to be all-consuming. And so you take being a fan of the sport and now investing all of your time and energy into trying to help this team succeed. And suddenly you, you, you really do live or die with the success of the organization. So, so yeah, in some ways it's like being a fan to an extreme. So yes, yeah, so you sort of go back and forth. During the day, you're working on your models and you try to, to disconnect. And then at, at night you watch the game and you're living and dying on every pitch. But yeah, I think if, <laughs> there's one thing that I would tell people is that the people who are running these teams care incredibly about their success. Personally and for the coaches, the players, I mean, you develop these relationships you want, you become part of the team. So yeah, it's, so, so I don't think you lose the feeling of being a fan. If anything, it's intensified. Doug Fearing, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being on the Present Value Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by myself, Paul Whitgo, and Serena Elavia. I'm your host for this episode, Greg Wool. Our engineer was Bert Odom Reed. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomanko. Special thanks to the Cornell Broadcast Studio for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.